Life's so full on. I've been working on this deck for ages. These steaks don't cook themselves, you know. Life's good with a Trex deck. Composite decking made from 95% recycled materials that won't rot, stain or fade. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. This is your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And as always, it is a pleasure to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Normally we sit in the studio and celebrate the life of a a great Australian sportsperson. My guest today transcends that though because at his prime, he was one of the most famous faces in the world of sport. His name is Mick Foley. You may know him as Mankind. You may know him as Cactus Jack. You may know him as one of the great wrestlers of all time. Mick, welcome. Thank you. Everyone's made me feel very welcome here so far. Big smiles in the control room. Thank you for the smiles. Uh, My third uh, third visit here to Oz and uh, the first two have been amazing, and we're thinking this is going to be even better. What struck you about your first couple of visits to Australia and and the reception that you've had and, and your fan base in this part of the world? What struck me initially is that people could actually go, you know, uh, which way did you fly? Like, <laughs> this is as far as you can possibly be from the United <laughs> States. Like, so, uh, you know, this, this, yesterday we went east through China and connected, whereas uh, in 2001 it was west through uh, Los Angeles. And that, and that flight was remarkable because they lost the pilot, couldn't find him in L.A. Like, where they just said, we can't locate the pilot. So... A uh, four-hour layover turned into a 10-hour layover, and so what would have been a 34-hour trip became you know, 42 hours door-to-door. And so it's, um, it's amazing to me that you can be as far as you can possibly be away <laughs> from home and still have a fan base that's uh, so enthusiastic. What about the various parts of the world that you've been to? Has there been any place that has surprised you, the intensity of the fans and the fact that they know everything about you when you didn't necessarily think that might be the case? Well, the intensity of the fans is a little different, okay? Uh, You know, we market what we do as sports entertainment, and I think uh, in the past 20 years or so, uh, fans have been able to appreciate it for what it is instead of knocking it for what it's not. And as much as, you know, some people long for the good old days, like I remember the good old days being beaten by fans in Nigeria because apparently they don't take kindly when you hand a foreign object to someone to then use on the Nigerian champion. And I just remember like turning and seeing a mass of humanity heading for me. I'm like, I'm being beaten up here. Did you and ever then, get to the stage where you, you feared for your life? Oh, yeah. I was very fearful. And uh, and especially they had, um, uh, guards with machine guns. And they got caught up in the action. They're like watching what happened. And unfortunately, it paid to be nice to uh, the, the, lo- the local wrestlers. You know, they uh, there's a story in my first book about, uh, you know, I thought it was odd. And, and we've come a long way in the U.S. and uh, around the world as far as accepting people for their differences. But... I remember thinking it was really strange in 87 to see guys holding hands and dancing together at clubs. And uh, and so I was embraced, uh, you know, as like as like one of the guys. And that meant that one day I was walking to breakfast and one of the guys was, was holding my hand. And I just kind of uh, gently said, uh, yeah, we're not comfortable doing that as a sign of friendship. And he was like, oh, Mr. Jack, I'm so sorry. I meant no disrespect. But that guy was the first guy in the ring to help me get out of that situation. So the guys with the machine guns did nothing, and I was uh, really rushed out by the uh, the Nigerian wrestlers came in, rescued me, uh, and then I was told that I would be taken to a, a chemist's office to be stitched up because you couldn't trust the hospitals. And that was the first time I thought to myself. I came back. Uh, I had uh, they had a nice Chinese restaurant. Um, at the hotel, the la- it was the last time we were able to eat there. The next day, they said that that restaurant was too expensive, <laughs> so making one hundred and fifty dollars for two weeks, that included being bludgeoned by uh, fans, and the Chinese restaurant was too expensive. And I remember saying to the- Tony Nardo, who was a fellow Dominic Danucci student, like, I need to write a book. And that was uh, that was eighty seven. So uh, uh, it-, it turns out that maybe I was just participating in enough life events. To make for good reading. How many books have you written? 
Well, I mean, I, I think 11 if you count children's books. I had four children's books, a couple novels, uh, you know, five memoirs, including one memoir about my experiences um, as uh, portraying Santa. And uh, you know going in that that's a small audience, but I had some stories I thought were worth uh, writing, and I'm glad I did it. Is it and, true that you write them all in longhand? Originally? Well, it was true for up until the, the last the last book I did. Uh, and I had a book in 2010 called Countdown to Lockdown, and I wrote that largely longhand, uh, but I wrote the final two chapters in uh, with a keyboard, and I thought, well, they came out almost as good as the handwritten stuff. It's so much easier. You bypass the whole you know, process where people try to decipher my handwriting. But shall I say, and uh, my agent Jordan can back me up, he's looking on, that uh, I had my right hip and my right knee replaced this year. And uh, my big goal in uh, recovery was to improve my handwriting to the point where it would look like Santa's handwriting. You just said about those body parts you had replaced. Yeah. You can't do what you did without feeling some sort of lingering effects. How bad have the effects been from your time in the ring? Well, you know, they were they were really bad. And um, yesterday I got off that plane and I was just so grateful for the new hip, uh, hip more so than the knee, because uh, a flight of that length would have had me in just a, I mean, I'm not trying to exaggerate, but excruciating pain for many minutes just trying to get up and get moving. And... Uh, and so one of the problems I'm having is my body is so used to walking incorrectly. The doctor said it's going to take your body a while to learn how to walk correctly because you've been favoring so many injuries. And my body initially wants to, like, tighten up and fight the pain from those first several steps. And so it's taking me a while to realize hey, I'm not that bad. You know, like I, nobody has asked me if I need assistance at an airport in the last uh, in the last six months, whereas that used to be like eight out of ten times, you know. Excuse me, sir, do you need assistance? So, um, I was told I had on good faith from every, literally every <laughs> veteran wrestler I encountered when they saw the things I was doing, saying, "You're going to pay for that stuff," you know. Like you know, the common perception was you're going to be in a wheelchair by the time you're forty, and I didn't consider it high risk. I considered it high impact. And I understood that there was a price to pay. So I missed very few matches. You know, like um, I, I may have missed uh, six weeks with a knee, sur- knee surgery. I even, I even wrestled the night after the infamous cell match. Uh, Mr. McMahon did give me four days off after that. But it was very rare that I ever missed a match because I, even though I was putting myself in great impact and knew there'd be a price to pay long term, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was largely in control of my destiny, if that makes any sense. Mm. Like, I wasn't just randomly being thrown, and I didn't, I escaped the neck uh, injuries that a lot of my colleagues did not. Uh, but I paid for it structurally with uh, with uh, deterioration of my hip and my knee, and uh, and there's little chips floating around that aren't supposed to be there. You were talking about that cell match, um, and as you write, I'll ask you about that cell match. It was against The Undertaker? Yes. You were thrown off the top of the cell onto a table. Yes. From what height? I don't know what it relates to in meters. It's And I could just go with the exaggerated version. You know, it'd be 30 feet, 40 feet. But it was a legit 16 feet. And uh, so, you know, people, it doesn't sound that high until you realize that's six feet taller than a basketball rim. And I was being uh, thrown Um and we we had no idea how that was going to end up, you know. And uh, the but uh, when it was while I was laying there, literally my first thought I was covered with the upper body was covered with the debris of the table was just about imploded. And today we have these um, a very eye catching, futuristic looking, visually striking barricades in WWE, and they look great compared to the steel bicycle racks that surrounded the ring when I was there. But if we had those cool, visually striking, uh, futuristic-looking barricades, then I would have been contained within the ringside area. We would have lost out on that kind of surreal image of half my body being out in the arena. You know, like, so here's my upper half is there with this, you know, debris strewn over me and the lower half sticking out into the audience. And, you know, fans lost their minds. We just, um, we wanted to do something that no one had ever seen before. 
Um, Is that dangerous, though, Mick, pushing it to that limit? Oh, yeah. Because from yeah. that height, yeah. if you make one little error in flight... True. Divers make an error in flight, they hit the water badly. If you make one error in flight, you could be seriously hurt. Yeah, especially given the monitors that were there. I did a great job of sounding far more confident than I actually was. Um, I had completely forgotten um, the conversations I had with The Undertaker leading up to the that match. And uh, I only discovered them through the pro- homework process, which included reading my own book again. And I saw that uh, every day for about two weeks, I would tell him I wanted to start the match on top of the cell. And every day he would tell me in no, no uncertain terms that was not going to happen under his watch. And then finally he came up to me, this concern as a guy who is not as a character, but as a human being. And he just said, Jack, why are you so intent on killing yourself? And I just, I said, I said, you know, listen, we've got a history. We've got a legacy. You know, we've had five pay-per-views. All of them were good. A few of them were great. Like, we went not only up and down the United States and across the country, but around the, the, the world. You know, I remember wrestling Undertaker in Kuwait. So instead of running from him in fear, like the length of a, you know, a hockey or a basketball arena, I was literally running 100 yards in the Kuwaiti National Soccer Stadium. You know, <laughs> like, I want to accentuate the fear that he struck in my heart by sprinting as fast as I could. And I said, and uh, I'm the character's flat right now. Like I just, I, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything to hurt our legacy. I want to do something that helps us live up to that. And and maybe if we can start the match in a way that no one's ever seen and do something that no one's ever done, maybe we can fool people into thinking we have a great match, even if we're not. And he just thought it over and he said, he just looked back at me and said, I'll think about it. And when I uh, arrived in Pittsburgh, Mr. McMahon was there. I guess he'd been appraised or apprised of uh, my intentions. And then he asked me if I had been up on top of the cell that afternoon. And I assured him I had, which to that point in my life was the biggest lie I'd ever told. And then he said uh, he wanted to know I was completely comfortable up there. And then I eclipsed that previous biggest lie by telling him I was. And uh, we got through it. And then my uh, my first thought when I was hit the hit the table was, "Hey, at least the worst part of my night is over." And <laughs> that didn't turn out to be the case. Vince McMahon, as we would say, or McMahon, as you would say, thought you were dead. Did he not? When you I, hit that table? No, it wasn't the table. It was the second one through the cell. Okay, uh, that really was the cause. I mean, the first one was cause for alarm. Uh, but you know, part of the. I mean, let me just finish this. You can just verify for. Uh, it looks very interesting. This is pretty nice handwriting, right? For a, for a wrestler, that's some good stuff there. So, hours wow. of work every single night. That's calligraphy. Yeah, yeah. So, look. So when the children receive those letters, they have no doubt that it is the real Father Christmas. I'll get you to sign that and we'll frame it and give it to one of the uh, the interested onlookers because I can tell you that the place has just gone mad, the fact that you are coming in today. Can I explore something you said to me yeah. there about your chats with The Undertaker? Right. What's the collaborative process like between the two wrestlers in a lead-up to something like that? I'll explain this uh, by virtue of – I'll go Santa again on you just momentarily. I don't want people turning the channel. This is not about – being Santa, but I was part of a documentary called I Am Santa Claus. And, uh, like, I had a, it was not only in it as the rookie who gets the chance to, like, to step up and be that guy in the chair, but I also helped as a producer and uh, played a much more active role as an editor than the director had imagined I would want to. And he only told me, like, months later, he was like, you know, like, I had a real job. And you would call me up and say, like, all right, Raw's in Brooklyn. <laughs> I can be in Philadelphia by 1 a.m. We can edit all night. And uh, we had very different ideas of where the film should be headed. And he told me that, called me up the next day, he said, I just want to apologize. I hope you don't think that I was being disrespectful to your viewpoint. And I said, Tommy, you've never been in a WWE dressing room on the night of a pay-per-view trying to fight for your vision of what that match should be. And there are times when it's a very smooth process, and there are times when it's it's as much of a struggle (laughs) – in the dressing room as it is in the ring. But ultimately, you want what's best for uh, the show. And I was fortunate in that I firmly believed that uh, I could 
do very well without winning matches. You know, that was a big sticking point for guys of a few uh, of a previous generation. Like to lose on TV was the kiss of death. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I can I can do that and uh, keep my head above water. And that was one of the things that made me, uh, uh, you know, a, a valuable role player in WWE. If you can lose and keep people interested, you're doing something pretty special. What's more fun to play, Mick, the villain or the hero? Oh, man. You know, I was everyone starts out, or at least they should, as a villain. Because you learn humility, first of all. Uh, almost across the board, people were, were always talking about how much nicer the bad guys were. And if you get into the wrestling business and you're a good-looking guy and you're brought in as a baby face or good guy right away, you tend to believe your own hype. Uh, but by the time you've made your first baby face turn and you've been spit on and cursed at in a variety of languages— uh, the cheers start coming. Uh, they feel good, and you realize it's part of <laughs> the, part of the business. And one of the difficult challenges for me was to be an aggressive. <laughs> you know, I'm not. I'm not. I wonder sometimes how I even made it. Like I'm not like the classic alpha alpha male, and like you got to fight for your territory in WWE. Like I said, sometimes it's in the ring, sometimes it's in the dressing room. But one of those things going back to trying to establish your vision, you know, to stand up to guys who are much bigger and more powerful physically, more forceful emotionally, and say, no, this is the way it should be, and then convince them that your way is better. That uh, takes some confidence, and uh, that's not something you gain overnight, for sure. You talked about the athleticism of a lot of the people who do professional wrestling, people like The Rock and Triple H. These men who are carved in granite have these imposing figures. You were not, what, are you, what are you saying here? Well, what I'm trying to I don't, say... I'm not sure I like where this uh, interview is heading this in I, the nicest possible I think this way. interview's over. I'm trying to say <laughs> this in the nicest possible way because you don't know how scared I am just at the moment. Was part of your appeal that you are every man when yeah. you were in the ring? Yeah. Um, I think people looked out as somebody that was more relatable, um, that I was more relatable to uh, to a lot of people out there. And uh, I was just saying before we went here, you know, as far as my one-man show goes, that one of the advantages I have is that most wrestlers, this is Brendan Burns, a great Australian comic who makes his living in the U.K., he was here with me and we came five years ago. And I hope it doesn't sound like, you know, I, I mean, this is me doing my Australian accent because I can't do Brendan Burns unless I'm doing his Australian accent. And I probably got it all wrong. But he says, mate, he goes, you know, the difference between wrestlers and comics is wrestlers play to their strengths so they seem larger than life. Comics play to their weaknesses so they're more relatable. And he goes, you've always played to your weaknesses. And that's why you have, you know, he thought that was why. I had a better chance of connecting with people that most wrestlers are going to go out there and tell you about the night they sold it out, the night they won the title, the night everything went, went uh, you know, incredibly right. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to tell you a story about the night things went incredibly wrong. And so you try to find humor in the most unlikely of places. And so as long as I've been, you know, we did our 20 shows in the U.S. and we just thought this is too good. I have clumsily segued from answering your question to promoting my own show. I believe that's what I've just done, right? Yes. But, um, and that's part and, of the reason you're here. <laughs> but uh, we thought early on, like, oh, man, I can't, we can't limit this to 20. This is the best stuff you know, I've ever done on stage. And it's uh, really, I think, captivating. And, you know, you're out there and you're, you're, and you're learning every night as you go. And you're saying, all right, this is getting really serious here. I need a moment of levity. So it's not a stand-up show in that I'm looking for boom set-up punchline. And there was only one guy in all the years I've been doing this tell me I needed to work on my LPM, my last per minute. And I just said, I have no interest whatsoever in the last per minute because I'll get as much satisfaction out of the moments of silence as I do laughter. And the only thing that matters to me is how people feel at the end of the night and whether they feel like the money they spent, the time they invested – was worth it. So for me, a laughs per minute ratio would be like a pops per minute ratio in a wrestling match. Utterly meaningless. You mm. can get people to ooh and ah, and the moment's over. It's just another match. It's how do you make your match stand out? How do you create something that people can remember 
when there's so much else out there. And so, you know, that's what we managed to do with that cell match 20 years ago, and that's what I try to do on stage every night. And I think you make a really interesting point about the power of silence. Uh, Silence is the natural enemy of the radio studio. Yeah. But sometimes when we're in a format like this, silence can make or break the moment. Sure. And we've found that with some of the magnificent guests that we've had on this program where that that moment of... um, pensiveness hits them and they and they think back to a moment and take their time to recall it. I'll give you an example. It might not be exactly what we're talking about, but uh, my youngest son's a huge basketball fan to the point where uh, we're watching every single summer league game. Like the season just ended and he's going to be so excited because one of the New York Knicks reached out to me <laughs> and his Cantor is a big fan and invite us to hang out with him in the city later on in the summer. But we're watching the... Uh, watching the uh, awards ceremony, you know, and they announced the MVP, and it's James Harden. Personally, I thought it should have been LeBron James. I thought he's more valuable to mm-hmm. his team and the league than Harden was. But nonetheless, it's his moment, and the MC, as he's up there hugging, the MC goes, hey, James, who needs who needs to be <laughs> play defense when you're, you're the MVP? And I thought, how dare that guy try to make that moment about himself when it's clearly – one of the biggest moments in this other guy's life, you know, and I think it's really difficult. It's, it's one of the things you learn as a wrestler is how to give someone their moment to understand it's not about you. Maybe this match, there are times like you, I was just thinking back and he won't mind me tell, telling a story because it's something that he's talked about as well. There was one time when I was heading into a match with uh, Triple H in um, February of uh, 2000 and I was going to be wrestling X-Pac um, who was part of DX um, a week or so ahead of time. And X-Pac wanted to have a really good match, and I thought I needed to be a little more dominant heading into that match with Triple H. And that's a really uncomfortable conversation to be having when you're asking someone to do less than he's capable of because you think it's better for the bigger picture, if that makes sense. Yes. So there are moments, you know, when, when, when you know, the company will have to say, you're going you're gonna to you're gonna take one for the team. You're going to get eaten up alive, and it's going to benefit this guy at your detriment. And you have to understand sometimes that that's that's your role. And I was that guy uh, on on many occasions as well, the guy who got eaten alive. And if somebody could devour, you know, mankind, Kane, for example, in two thousand and nineteen ninety seven, largely forgotten because of the Montreal screw job. But my job that night was to raise Kane. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a figure of speech, but to elevate Kane. And if you go back and watch, it's an, it's astonishing how much distance I got when Kane um, choke slammed me from the ring apron through a through th- uh, a table at ringside. And to this day, people are like, "How did you get that kind of distance?" It's like it's all about playing to your strengths, avoiding your weaknesses, and creating illusions when possible. So. Uh, just before we take a break, was the third most dangerous thing in wrestling for a while, and you talked about going through out of the ring and going through tables, was the Spanish announcer <laughs> the third most difficult position to be in wrestling? I, I firmly believe that the Spanish announced table should be inducted into, it should be the first inanimate object inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, and I would love to do the inducting. Could you just explain that for the people who don't quite understand? Uh, the people don't quite about. understand. For many years, um, Mr. McMahon was the commentator. He was the play-by. He was a very subtle play-by. <laughs> oh my goodness! Down to the canvas. He he did. Yeah, he he wasn't. He lacked subtlety. Uh, and uh, and if you're the boss, you can get away with saying what a maneuver. <laughs> so, so you know he didn't necessarily have to know the names of all the moves, but he could cover it by saying what a maneuver. Mm-hmm. And because he was the boss, it was a given that you're not going to go through his table. And because, you know, the WWE's big in so much of the world, but in the Spanish-speaking countries, you know, we always had the, the Spanish announcers there. And so they were the designated table that guys would take out because no one was going to go through Mr. McMahon's <laughs> table. And then it just became just part of the culture. And it's funny because I actually referred to when Brendan Burns was out there with me. I'd be here five years ago. Brendan's he's a great comic, you know, but he works very he, he can work blue, and uh, and I'll drop one F-bomb during the entirety of a show. And I find that's like my finishing move. Like, I will build it, I will tease it, and boom, if we hit it. 
and, and, and do it right and get a standing ovation for one bad word, we really feel like we've accomplished something. But Brennan goes out there and he works, you know, kind of blue and he's a, and he's an incredible comic. He's got at this point 30 years, you know, of, of experience. And I would go up there and I would just go, ladies and gentlemen, the first the last thing you see before you walk through the curtain to participate in a WWE event is do not go through the Spanish announce table. And the reason <laughs> they put that up there is they like to reserve that for the main event in case they want to do something <laughs> extra. And I would say, ladies and gentlemen, Brendan Burns just went through the Spanish announce table. Like, how am I going to follow this guy? But, uh, yeah, it just became part of the culture. And um, and now every once in a while when you do go through the English-speaking announce table, it's like, oh, now it's really on. They went through the English table. I'm going to turn the clock back when we come back on the other side of the break. Uh, I said that a lot of people have become very excited with your visit today. The amount of production that has gone into this show is tenfold to what it normally is. We are actually going to go out to the break with a piece of music that you may actually recognise. The Cactus Jack theme. Yes, and there's a story behind that that you're not going to like. Why don't we find out on the other side of the break with Mick Foley on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. It is a very special edition of the program today. Mick Foley, you may know him as Mankind, you may know him as Cactus Jack, you may know him as Dude Love, but he is a larger than life character and it is wonderful to have Mick in the studio. What was the story you were going to tell us when we came back after the break, Mick? Oh, about that piece of music. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, the original Mankind music, as dreary as it was, <laughs> uh, I'd say it was the most pitiful entrance ever given to a WWE performer. Uh, and there's a, I was not expected or even hoped to succeed. I only found out recently I was only brought into WWE uh, to break Jim Ross's heart. That's kind of, you know, when you read that, like when Mr. McMahon told him, like, all right, I'm going to bring this. I'm not doing my imitations. I might go in and do a Vince imitation. Like, all right, I'm going to bring this guy in <clears throat> so you know how it feels to have your heart broken. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm looking at that, I'm like, what? You're like, I'm a, I'm a human being. Like I was brought in to break another human being's heart. And I look back, I was like, well, I mean, that's why well, I had the dreary entrance music and dressed from head to toe in brown. But at least it was original WWE music composed by Jim Johnston. In 97, when Mr. McMahon came around to, to realizing, wow, this guy actually has like a real life story that's more interesting than the fictional one we've created he allowed me to become Dude Love, who had been the character, you know, that I had wanted to be as a teenager. And they they made some original music for that, which was very catchy. But the Cactus Jack debut in Madison Square Garden in 1997, like to allow me to be the character that he had specifically disliked and said would never be in WWE. Uh, he made up his mind and the music had to be discovered quickly, which meant they went to the public domain. So that's not the only WWE or not the only people who've used that music. And about six or seven years later, I was at a, a promoter's house, and he invited me in to watch something, and it was an adult film to my Cactus Jack. What music. was your first uh, reaction when you saw that, Mick? <laughs> I, I don't ever want to be Cactus Jack again. Like I don't. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd rather. I, one of those things. I wish I could just hit the erase button on. Uh, that music you were talking about with mankind, and you said that it was the worst piece of music. Jono, hit the button. This is it. Yeah, you smell that? That's money. <laughs> there's no, no, like, the hardest thing was when I became a good guy, there's no Pavlovian response, you know, like, there were moments, like, DX stood the test of time, they were, you know, been an amazing draw and all that, but there were times when maybe their segments were not particularly, you know, occasionally could have been better. But the moment that DX music kicked on, man, there were no doubt you were about to see superstars. There's nothing about that music that has superstar written on it. It's not even like vaguely suggested. It's just dreary. And uh, I think it was intentional and uh, part of part of the attempt to make sure I was not successful. But the character was not dreary. The character was complex yeah, right. and a very dark character. Yeah. What about that process again? I asked you about the process uh, compared to the other wrestler that you go through. What about the collaborative process to come up with something like Mankind? How long does that take from start to finish? <sighs> ah, you know, I mean, uh, I had this meeting with Mr. McMahon, and uh, 
I was brought in, not realizing I was only brought in to break Jim Ross's heart. And I see an illustration of a guy with a mask, and it never dawned on me that it could be for me. Because one of the things I had were expressive facial features. And yet they had this idea to have me wearing this you know, elaborate mask. And uh, uh, there was a, a big part of me that did not want to do it. But then another part of me, and also with my wife's uh, help, you know, that told me this is something you could really try, you know, put do something different, go out there, go out on a limb. And so I, when I debuted, I didn't want to be Cactus Jack under a mask. I wanted it to be something different. And it was dark, and it was a little scary. And uh, I'm always uh, very flattered when adults come up to me and say, oh, my God, you scared me when I was a child. And there were times when I would go backstage and see someone there, uh, you know, for a Make-A-Wish visit, and I would walk up to a child, hey, and kids would run from me. And I had to remember, oh, that's, that's right, that's what you do. You're the scary guy. But I had to put a lot of myself into that character. And I think one of the things I'll do while I'm in Australia doing these shows is we did the 20 in the U.S., and it, it'd be easy just to do the same exact show. But I was spent several hours yesterday on the flight going through my notebook, realizing I hadn't even used a good portion of what I'd written down. And so I'll probably tell stories where I go into the character of mankind. So while it's not an easy character, we just switch it, flick a switch and turn into when I'm on stage and I can build up to that. It's really satisfying for me. Not as satisfying as doing a Mr. McMahon voice, which brings me great happiness. You want me? Here's I wish you would, because I've heard, I've heard so much about this impression. So, so I found out, oh, I, I was not supposed to know the name of the character, right? But one of the people in talent said, hey, did you hear your name? I said, no, what is it? He goes, you're going to be Mason the Mutilator. And I thought, that's a death knell. Nobody can pull that off. And I talked about in one of my books that when Steve Austin, who came into arguably the greatest attraction of, the, you know, of his era, like him or The Rock, right? Uh, Steve came in as the games master, real flat character. And when he said he wanted to do something like a cold-blooded type of thing, and the WWE creative took that cold literally, like we're going to make him like a – Baron Von Chili, Chili McFreeze, Baron Von Ruthless, Ice Dagger. And I would say, like, I don't care how good he is. And Steve was one of the very best. Same music, same knee brace, same guy, same look, same skill level, everything. He comes down to the ring and Howard Finkel says, Ice Dagger. He's done, right? Mm -hmm. So I know if I'm Mason the Mutilator, I've got no future in the company. So when Mr. McMahon... um, you know, the next meeting, I was privy to the knowledge, you know, and I'd had my wheels turning. And he goes, do you know your name? And I said, no, no, no. He goes, in this business, we've had crushers. We've had destroyers. We've had executioners. But we've never had a mutilator. And that's what you are. And then he told me the name Mason. He goes, what do you think, pal? And I went, I like it. I like it, but what if instead of being Mason, this is where my twelve years. So this is your idea yeah, becoming his, his idea. idea. Yeah, so I'm not going to say it's terrible. I said, but what if instead of being Mason the mutilator, I was mankind the mutilator? He looked at me. He said, "I'm not sure I understand." And I said, "Well, that way, when I talk about the future of mankind, the destruction of mankind, we're telling you, it's got like multiple levels to it." He was taking notes, and he was in, and I offered suggestion after suggestion about. What if I had a separate exit music? What if the only thing that really made me happy was human suffering? And that's reflected in my exit music, which is gentler. And uh, when I showed up for uh, WrestleMania week, I had a packet that just said Mutilator on it. Just Mutilator. And I debuted the day after WrestleMania. And I didn't even know my name. And I came down. Howard Finkel said, come down to the ring. Mankind. No Mutilator. No Mason. I have the match with Bob Holly. Match ends, and here comes the gentle piano music. And I'm like, well, he did every single thing I asked. And I don't think if, if, I, if I'd come into WWE with three or four years experience, I just would have been so enamored of Mr. McMahon, you know, as a larger-than-life character. I think I just would have nodded my head. I would be like Ralphie saying it would be okay to have a football, you know. And I was like, no, when he wanted the Red Rider, you know. And I was able to tell Mr. McMahon, you know, that I wanted the Red Rider. You talked about flicking the switch yeah. to go from Mick Foley to Mankind. A lot of actors talk about 
when they play a demanding role, a very dark role, a disturbing role, that it carries on with them. Was mm-hmm. it easy to flick that switch off when you were going back from Mankind to Mick Foley, or did part of it go with you? Well, one of the, yeah, part of it did go with me, but uh, I could also uh, I could also emote and get rid of a lot of it. I would hold on to some. I'm not saying this is emotionally healthy. But all of the best promos, you know, up until much later in my career were were, were based on real emotions. So uh, to this day, you can Google an interview I did just under the name Kane Dewey. Kane, C-A-N-E, as a verb. Dewey with the name of my son. And uh, and people are like, where did that come from? It was, just, it was like, it's just a little real anger and frustration channeled into a promotional interview. And when it was done, I went to a park and picked up my kids, and I was I was fine. It was like someone had been paying me for therapy. But one of the things I had going for me that the guys of my era did have going for them as well is that people didn't write promos for us. And so in my case, I was always in the zone. I was always thinking of what to say, especially when I was in the car. And or I could be anywhere. Like my wife would notice the signs. Like Sting had a gym in Atlanta that, believe it or not, I I went to regularly. And I'm not saying I got any stronger there, but I thought of a lot of cool stuff. And uh, my wife would see my right finger starting to shake, and my right eye would start blinking. You know, and and I didn't know people would actually be like looking like they thought I was in a trance. And my wife would go, Mick, 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 you're cutting promos, aren't you? And I'm like, Yeah, 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 I am. <laughs> And I was always I was always cutting promos in my head, so I always had something to say. And um, I, you know, I love when the, the you know the superstars of the modern era will ask me for advice. And uh, I don't think Becky Lynch will uh, will will mind me, you know, quoting her here. But she was looking like for something. She just going back a few years. She's like, I don't know, I don't, I, I can't do a good Becky Lynch. She's got a great voice. I'm not gonna. It's one thing to to do Mr. McMahon's voice here, but Becky, you know, Becky's got the great brogue, and and uh, I just told her like, always be prepared, always be prepared. You never know when that microphone is going to be given to you, and you're going to be want to be ready. And I was so proud of her when she had a chance to, you know, we use baseball all the time, you know, as a metaphor for life. So we to really knock it out of the park. And I was just talking with my agent last night saying that's the one thing I think that's missing for her is they're not letting her be impassioned, you know. And uh, so I think that's the one thing we lose. And my son's part of the creative team. I know how difficult it is to write promos. You look at a blank page, you try to make it come alive in someone else's voice. And I think that's helpful in keeping promos on track so guys don't just go into business for themselves, you know, and, and say things that have nothing uh, relating to the upcoming match, but I think you, when you play it safe that way, you you eliminate the chances of disasters, but you also eliminate the the chance that there might be an element of magic in the air and that something really special is going to take place. And I was really fortunate that, uh, um, you know, on a number of occasions, I was given the chance to create something really special. Speaking of the business today, compared to the business when you were at the peak of your powers. Has it changed because of the attitudes towards brain injuries? Or oh, yeah. Has it become a little bit more politically correct, do you feel? Well, yeah, definitely. You know, it's a PG, they call it the PG era. And given that they're operating with a much narrower, narrower uh, uh, par- paradigm, is it? I'm a yeah. best selling author. Is that a correct word, guys? Want to look it up? We're going with that, that contextually. Um, I think they do an amazing job, and, and uh, y- you know, I came over, I think, in 2001 to Australia for the first time, and I believe part of the reason was to see what the market was like, and when they were like, well, geez, if Mick Foley's drawing thousands of people to, <laughs> to an event, I believe we as a company can can do, draw thousands of people to Australia as well. Um, and I just lost track of what the question was. And it was about brain injuries, wasn't it? It was. Uh, yeah. And yeah. the political uh, yeah, the correctness. Pl- so, yeah, yeah. These so days. as a company, they're more popular than ever. But I don't think uh, – I'm lucky that, you know, I was there when characters were really connecting and creating – I just received a letter from uh, uh, a, uh, a man telling me that his daughter was, as a young child, was so uh, – caught up in the mankind character as like that outsider just looking for acceptance. And so that nine-year-old has gone on to continue to be a big fan who was touched by that character because it connected in a very real way. 
then I think I was able to do that. You know, The Rock was able to connect. Steve was able to connect. You know, Hunter was able to connect because we had that freedom. So I think we're missing a little bit of that. I think what we gained is uh, better matches almost across the board, but they they happen so regularly that they're kind of become easily digestible that there are guys out there who are so good so frequently that people take them for granted. And I did not have that going for me. Like, I wasn't so good so frequently that people expected that from me. Like, so when I did something that stood out, you know, it could be remembered for a longer time. We do have to head to another break. Yeah. Uh, yet again, the producers have been working overtime. So this time it's going to be Dude Love out to the break. Oh, no. Okay, let's do it. Let's do that. And then when we come back, I want to talk about a few things that you touched on. Family, The Rock, and also one particular disparaging remark that was made about oh. you oh, oh. when you became the champion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that for sure. We'll explore that on the other one side of the One disparaging remark. Where do I choose from? There have been so many. <laughs> Mick Foley is with us. Down. For this There's is only three your words to this song. For Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives. Listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. What a pleasure it is to have Mick Foley as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. Dude love out to the break. Does that bring back good memories for you? Yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was Mr. McMahon allowing me to live out my dreams. Yeah, with a song that only had three words in it. <laughs> Dude love and baby. <laughs> well, the simple things in life are often the best, Mick. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you mentioned family, your wife, Colette. Yep. Your son's involved in uh, WWE at the moment. Yep. Uh, there was one particular match where they were ringside. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was the match against The Rock, <laughs> right. I think. Yeah. And you wrote about that in one of your books. That must have been difficult to have them there when you looked back at the vision of that match and saw that they were Distraught. distressed. Yeah. <laughs> I laugh about it now. It's it's in the the documentary Beyond the Mat, and uh, the director Barry Bloom, Barry Blaustein rather, uh, Barry Bloom's been my manager for many years, and actually was introduced to Barry Blaustein through Barry Bloom. So you can see where it'd be easy to mm-hmm. make that mistake. He actually really thought it was important that I see the footage of my children reacting because he he really felt like I was a good dad, and that people were going to misjudge me as a parent. And I was I was devastated when I saw that because I guess in fairness to me, by the time I saw my children backstage, they had recovered. Um, but it was a traumatic event for sure. And it, it, you know, I, I have joked and said, "Hey, like this is great that we're doing twenty year reunion, you know, anniversary of Helena Cell, and it's so nice that it's been really well attended in the states, and we expect that uh, several shows sold out early, and new shows had to be added here in Australia." And I think people are going to be really responsive to that. But if I did a 20th year anniversary of that match and there were more than a dozen people there, I would lose my faith in humanity because that's not the type of thing you want to celebrate. That was whereas the cell match was, you know, surreal and heroic in ways. The the I quit match with the rock was just excessive, you know, and did it, it get out of hand? Yeah, it did. It did. Like. And I write about that, and you've got the old paperback copy of Foley is Good. And I, I said in that book, like, you know, WWE and wrestling is there. It's at its best when you lose sight of the character. You, you lose sight of playing a character, and you become that character. So, people, it's at its best when you're not portraying, you're being that character. And when I say, like, I don't, that was the wrong time and the wrong place for two guys to become that character. So we entered it with the idea of giving The Rock a mean streak because he was such an amazing heel, and it was clear that he and Austin were headed for the big money match, and I just thought he should have a mean streak because he was just, he was fun. It was hard to boo him. He was so enjoyable. And by that standard, that match was a huge success because it created, it showed a definite mean streak in The Rock. But, um, yeah, when he's got a steel chair, he's one of the most powerful men in the world, and I'm handcuffed with that's not the time you want to become mankind mm. facing the rock. And it feels very, very real, you know, and it just, it, it got carried away. And it was, and we both know it. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm glad that almost everyone who watches that goes, Oh, I never want, I never want to see anything like that again. And here you are in the dressing room afterwards being stitched up because you had a, a long gash on the side of yeah. your head. Your kids are there. 
people are coming in to see how you were, and you say in the book there was one person who didn't come in. Oh, yeah. In fairness to The Rock, and we did, this is where, you you know, it's good to talk things over. Because you, can you imagine how I'd feel now if I still held a grudge against him and he's the most popular man in the world? <laughs> so we, we did have a nice talk about it. And he was like, Mickey goes, I watched the movie. He goes, I, I should have been there. But, and this is the big thing, is The Rock still had to go out and participate in the Royal Rumble. It was Mr. McMahon's first match. I think Mr. McMahon actually won that rumble, believe it or not. He showed up. <laughs> you know, he's just in such phenomenal shape. And otherwise, The Rock would have been at my side. And uh, But I was able to hold on to that anger for a little while, thinking that if I ever have that chance to turn on him, which was the reason behind the original uh, Rock and Sock connection, was I was going to turn on The Rock. And I was going to use that moment as my reason. And looking back, I'm like, I probably could have just pretended to be mad. You know, I can pretend. You know, like there's a famous line about, uh, uh, I think, Dustin Hoffman training so ardently for Marathon Man. And Lawrence Olivier showed up. And the and Dustin Hoffman was telling about all the character work he was doing. And Lawrence Olivier just looked at us. You ever thought about acting? (laughs) (laughs) And so I I could have just pretended to be mad and probably could have carried that off. And instead, I held on to that. But the good news is when The Rock and I teamed up, we had such great chemistry and the ad libs were so natural that nobody wanted to see that team split up, you know. And so he and I had a nice talk about it just a couple of years ago saying never did we think when we're creating this stuff. None of it scripted at all. I mean, there was like, this is your life, where this, where the actors who were supposed to be portraying the rocks, a kindergarten teacher, a home economics teacher, a football coach, girlfriend, they want to run lines. And I go, okay. And Dwayne comes over, and I'm like going, okay, I'll bring you out. The rock will say something, you'll leave. And then uh, I'll bring you out. The rock will say something, you leave. And they, the guy looks, he goes, is this how you do it? And we go, yeah, yeah. Like, we don't rehearse, you know? Like, we don't have to go over lines. You know, he was such a natural and uh, and and I think that's part of the reason those segments captured people's imaginations. And we both remarked on how, although none of us, we didn't feel like we were doing anything particularly special while we were out there, but you can't dictate to anyone else what their memories are made up of, you know. And, and, and after 19 years, that's what I get asked about second most often. First it's a cell, and then it's about teaming up with Rock. And that's when I came to realize that, you know, making making people laugh was at least as satisfying as scaring them. <laughs> you know, that making someone's uh, you know mouth form a smile is more satisfying than their jaw dropping in awe, and a lot easier to do. You made a lot of people smile when you eventually claimed the belt and won the championship. Yeah. There is a story that goes along with that because there were two competing factions for wrestling at that time. Yeah. I think. Yeah. On the other competing faction that you had wrestled for, there was an announcer, I think Tony Schiavone? Yep, Schiavone, yep. Schiavone. He made an announcement while they were going to air about what was about to go to air with the WWF yeah. as it was then. Tell us that story. Yeah, because at the time, um, uh, Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling was live every week, and we were only live every other week. We would tape the second show to air a week later, so it was already known, like, within the industry that I had was going to be winning the title. And so Tony went on. And, and it's just Eric Bischoff, you know, at his behest. At Eric's behest, Tony said, no, no need to turn that channel. <laughs> That's a taped show. We know that Mankind, who wrestled here as Cactus Jack, is going to win their championship. And then he said real dismissively, that'll put butts in seats. And when I saw it, it it hurt my feelings real bad, you know. Like you can say you shouldn't be hurt by something like that, but then you can say if I wasn't sensitive to that type of thing, I never would have cared enough to do what I did, given my physical limitations that you were kind enough to point out to the entire country. Sorry about that. Um, Don't get mad at me. And so it did hurt because it, it took away what was a really special moment for me, which was celebrating with my children. You know, then that show, our show was over. I watched then the WCW show on delay. And it, it, it really hurt me for about 12 hours. And then what happened? We, we found out the, the, the ratings came in and showed that almost to the second that Tony Schiavone gave away the ending to our show, that half a million people 
switch channels simultaneously. And overnight, the perception of me, especially within the wrestling industry, changed from a reliable, talented role player to being a superstar. And it was the best thing that could have happened to me. And it's funny when people ask me if I'm angry. I'm like, no, no, I'm not angry. Like Tony and I and Eric Bischoff are all part of this historical moment. And I've only seen Tony once, I think, since then. And we laughed about it. But I see Eric frequently. And um, we did a legend show, you know, where they just said, okay, you and Eric open up the show. Just do whatever you want. And I went up to Bischoff and I cut a promo about him, you know, ruining the most important night of my life. There's something I've been wanting to say to you for 20 years. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, without that night, I mean, the two most significant nights in my career were the cell match um, and that that title victory. And I don't think the title victory would have been – would have come to fruition had it not been for that cell match. But we were able to create these two really incredible moments uh, that wrestling fans recall so fondly 20 years after the fact. And uh, we talked earlier about how it's difficult – with so many good things going on to to stand out in any way. And so those two moments more than anything, you know, etched me in people's minds and really put me in a place in the discussion of like wrestling greats that I don't belong in. I never carried the company on my back. I held the title three times for a combination of like 41 days. Like I didn't have to go through security very often <laughs> trying to explain that it wasn't a bandsaw in my bag, but a title belt. Uh, and so I'm just I was, I'm grateful that Tony gave away the finish and that Eric suggested it because it turned out to be absolutely the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Speaking of the belt, because it was pre-recorded, am I right in saying you went home with the belt, but you yeah. hid it from your children? I hid it from my children, and uh, you know they would stay up on Monday nights till eleven. And when I won that title, you know, and I mean, the, the, the speech was impromptu. And I just want to say to my two little ones, you know, big dad, who did it? You know, borrow a little phrase from Rocky. And then I, in my living room, brought out the title belt. And we were all jumping around and the kids were running around with the with the championship title. And that's why 10 minutes later they go to bed and I watch the WCW show. And I went from a high to a low. And I did uh, the next day. Once the ratings had come in, I called Tony Schiavone, and I just left a forlorn message. I just said, ah, Tony, it's Mick Foley. I heard what you said. I, 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 I thought it was a cheap shot. I worked really hard uh, for your company, and um, in the end, I think it's probably just going to hurt you guys anyway. And a couple hours later, my wife comes and she goes, Mick, uh, Tony Schiavone's on the phone, and he sounds so sad. And so, you know, it's look, that was... That was some dirty – it was a struggle for survival, you know. I mean, he was shooting someone else's yeah, bullets, though, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So you didn't hold that against him? No, I did for several years. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, eventually you let, stu- let go of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a break. We've got some more music to take us to the break. And then we're just about out of time, but I want to turn the clock all the way back and find out Here's a little bit. Here's that peppy. Yeah. We're going to find out where it all began. You We're going it. to find out why you are called Mick. There's a story behind that. And we'll probably find out a few other things that we didn't expect to find out when we come back with our final segment with Mick Foley on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat. Listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. And we are back with our final segment with Mick Foley on This Is Your Sporting Life. I noticed, Mick, a little smile come over your face when you heard that piece of music as we went to the break. It means a bit to you? It does. Um, First of all, we were talking earlier about how dreary the original music was and how even after I became a good guy, I was lacking that Pavlovian response. You know, there's no car crash, you know shattering of glass, you know, no indicator that, okay, we're supposed to get, we're supposed to react just a just real dirge, <laughs> depressing dirge. And the day after I won the uh, the title or the week after, you know, Jim Johnson wrote that real peppy uh, rec song. And so I, I joked, I, WWE came to record uh, this special, you know, they, they saw it, uh, they realized it was something they wanted on their network. They came to Pittsburgh 20 years to the day. And um, I had asked a, a young lady who's one of the most talented guitar players in the world. Her name's Nita Strauss, and she's the lead guitarist for Alice Cooper, if she would play my music 
uh, at the big night in Pittsburgh, not knowing that she would then be given the opportunity, uh, would earlier be given the opportunity to play in front of 75,000 people at WrestleMania. And uh, as someone who never had an entrance, a special entrance, I mean, when I, I heard her playing in Pittsburgh and I'm standing off in the wings and here's one of the greatest players in the world doing it for me, refusing to accept any money to do it and and absolutely feeling like it was up there with the most important things she'd done. Yeah, I got really emotional and I, I wrote her a card where I'm like, I'm sorry for the prolonged hug. But it was just a really special moment for me, and I didn't want to didn't want to let it go, you know. So, yeah, if it airs, maybe they have to take an edit. You know, I just grabbed hold of Nita in a very respectful way and didn't let go for an uncomfortable amount of time. Just another incredible moment in an incredible journey, a journey which began, I think, with you hitchhiking to Madison Square Garden. Yeah, is that yeah. where the fuse was lit? Yeah, I, you know, probably lit months before that, but uh, in, but that because of that fuse feud, Jimmy Snuka and Don Morocco. I mean, that's one of those things that takes a guy who's a fan and makes him need to buy a ticket. And I absolutely, I had to see that first match in the Garden, the first you know, July of. 83 and so when the payoff came in October in a steel cage with the uh just the possibility the anticipation that Snuka might come off the top yeah I did I hitchhiked from my college it was about a two out uh, 250 I don't know how many kilometers but 250 miles um and because I was on my own I was able to uh to um get a really good seat you know one seat in the second row and got to see history and uh so I was never a competitor. Well, WWE is very competitive, you know, as far as the spots there. I was always a performer. And so I always thrived on reactions. Even when I watch you know, motion pictures, I'll look and I'll go, there's, there's the reaction. It's the re-. Even if you watch Step Brothers, right, and they have that great climactic scene where Brennan and Dale, you know, they tear down the house with the Catalina wine mixer. What makes that are the reaction shots to the D-man breaking down, you know, to, to Dr. Doback, cheering them on. Like, I, I know that. I know it's always about the reaction, even going back to, you know, one of my favorite movies, The Green Mile. It's not the fact that John Coffey says, bring him to me, boss, and makes that little mouse come back to life. It's the reaction shots of David Morse, you know, just open mouth and awe. Uh, gets the, the, you know, it gets the brain rushing. And so uh, I, uh, Snooka came off the top, and I immediately looked around at the audience and I see people hugging each other, and I see grown men crying, and I thought, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to create a moment that makes people feel the way that I feel right now. I want to take you back even further than that, and I talked about your name, Mick. Yep. Where did you get that from? Well, you know, I think Mick is an accepted nickname for Michael, my given name. But um, And Michael came from? I don't know. Mickey Mantle? Oh, Mickey, Mickey, yeah. The Mick from uh, from the Mick part is I was Mickey up to this day, you know, uh, the people in uh, middle school and high school, they'll refer to me as Mickey. I don't know why I dropped it once I got to uh, college and became Mick. But, yeah, I was Mickey, you know, after baseball great Mickey Mantle. And your dad, I think, said to you that he thought that Mickey Mantle went one year too long and that should be a lesson to you in your career. Well, it should be a lesson to everybody, but, you know, with baseball and other sports sports there are judged objectively. You can tell when someone can't get around on the fastball because the averages start stop dropping, whereas in sports entertainment, guys are often more effective, sometimes far more effective, uh, when they're past their physical prime because they can connect with audiences and and, the, and that's what it's all about. But it also means because we're judged subjectively that almost every guy feels like he's still got one great match left in him. And so I was fortunate in a way that my career didn't end in the ring, but it ended in a neurologist's office with a very respected neurologist telling me I should never wrestle again. And uh, I shook his hand and I knew it was over. First thing I did was call Edge, who had uh, retired under similar circumstances in a doctor's office. And I I realized uh, I was good with that. But then the problem becomes, how do you feel the way wrestling made you feel? How can you find something that makes you feel as alive as you were in that ring? And it's difficult. I mean, it's a difficult challenge for every guy. And in in my case, creating these shows really working on shows and I'll 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 complain every once in a while because a lot of guys just show up and do a question and answer. 
And that's fine because wrestling fans love that. But to me, there's no sense of commitment there. There's no potential to fail because there's no expectations. And even though I know I could just show up evening with and uh, do a format with a host and answer questions, we could have a good show like you and I are doing right now, mm. right? But there's no potential for me to fail miserably. But you get up there on that stage and you try to take people on the same type of emotional roller coaster ride that you did in the ring, but you're only doing it with words. Every single night you're out there, there's the potential to, to fail. And I like that. It reminds me of being in the ring. And when you go out there and you try things that are not safe, and you fail sometimes. One of the great failures I ever had was on stage in Melbourne. You know, when I tried something, Brendan Burns absolutely told me it wouldn't work. You know, he goes, I said, no, why? How do you know it's not working? He because I've been doing this 25 years. Like, nobody's going to hum along with you. Besides, the sound of 500 people humming sounds very much like the sound of 500 people not humming. I was like, no, they're going to do it, man. They're going to do it. And I tried to lead the hum along, even though we had a finish that had worked just you know, really well in Sydney. And when I opened my eyes and saw that not a blessed soul in the place was humming, were you, you guys, any of you guys there? It was really uncomfortable. It was really, really uncomfortable. But it was also exhilarating because I'm like, all right, I've got to make this work somehow. So I just stood out there and refused to leave. Refused to leave. I just kept humming. And then uh, it was it was quite remarkable. I mean, uh, Brendan was upset because somebody reviewed it and said it was a disaster and pointed out the ending. And Brendan was like, it was a work of beauty. It was the greatest thing I've seen in 25 years. <laughs> uh, but I like that. I like I, I don't want to get all passionate here. I don't want to dismiss guys who show up and take bookings to answer questions because that's great. I just don't think that it makes you feel like you did when you were in the ring. And that to me is the the appeal of working on a show and trying to make it better every single night. I'll ask you about those shows when we close our program in just a sec, but just one thing I want to follow up from with what you just said about finding out from a neurologist that your career was over and you were okay with that. The lure of the crowd is a very addictive thing for sports people. Have you come across any guys that you wrestled with in that era who have come to the end of their careers and not handled it as well as you? Yeah, sure. I mean... um uh, you know, I, I've been out of touch with Mr. McMahon for a long time, and uh, I got a message. This is back when I was working for um, Impact Wrestling, and I got a phone message, and he wanted to reestablish um, contact, and he said, I know you don't like me, but I know you love this company. And within about 10 seconds when I returned his call, I found myself saying, I, I like you. <laughs> but I told him that, said, Mr. McMahon, one of the things you have to understand is that working for WWE is as close to living in the land of Oz as you can get. And while Dorothy may have longed for a long, flat, boring, black and white Kansas, I can't imagine she was happy there. You know, I said, uh, I'm lucky that I get to jump back in anytime I want. But a lot of guys can't do that. And they have a lot of difficulty dealing with it. And uh, I... And I think that one of the few wise things I've ever written is that nobody should define for you what being a success is. You know, you get to do that by your, all on your own. So any guy that decides to help others, you know, um, I think is a complete success. Anyone who finds the de- degree of satisfaction going out there, whether it's in front of 12 people or, you know, or, or 1,200 or 12,000, uh, you know, I wrote that uh, – you know, I was out there in front of 101,000 people uh, at WrestleMania. I looked around when they announced Steve Austin's name, knowing no one would be looking at me, and I just took it all in. I thought, this is amazing. But I can't tell you it was any more amazing than being by myself as Santa Claus in front of a father and two children, you know, when they, they don't know Santa's, you know, wise to them watching. And you get a text message back. I, my, son, my son, Huey, was my elf. And uh, they sent me, the father sent me a text message. He said, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. We'll never forget this moment. And I told my son, I I feel like I just had a huge pay-per-view match. And he said, but dad, there were only three people there. I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's about creating something that people will remember. So for me, uh, I'm really content in just knowing that I work hard to create memorable images. Um, and I hope that other people who are struggling, you know, to find something that makes them feel as alive as they did when they ring can, can can find that. 
I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to this now who have had their appetite whetted because we know of you as the wrestler, but over the last hour we've learned a lot about you as a person, as a man, as a father, as a communicator. And if people want to see more of that and experience more of that, you've spoken about the shows, the House of Hardcore shows. They're going all around Australia. What's yeah. the easiest way for people to hear more of this fascinating conversation? They can just having? go to my website, realmickfoley.com. Um, the House of Hardcore shows, I'm, I'm do three of them. Uh, and then I do my own shows in uh, in Melbourne, sold out very quickly, a 300-seat venue. So uh, we brought it to a bigger bigger venue. So we've got a, a couple hundred seats left. Uh, Sydney sold out, and we added an earlier show. Adelaide sold out. Uh, we added an earlier show. And then we're also going to, to Perth and Brisbane and then Hobart. So uh, there are tickets. So there are tickets available for all the cities. And uh, I just... I love doing it, and my goal is to make each show better than the one before it. And so as much as I loved, you know, laying it down in Pittsburgh 20 years to the day, you know, my goal is to make these shows even better than those were. I wish we had more time. That's the expression that I use on the show more often than not. But in this case, I really do wish we had more time because there's so much I haven't asked you about. We might even try and get you back on for another edition of the show. But if we don't, it's been such an enjoyable hour for me to learn more about you. The character that we saw was engrossing at times. It was dark. It was funny. But there's a lot more to Mick Foley, the man, and I'm glad we got the opportunity of finding a bit about that. Me too. Thanks for having me on. And Have a nice day. And thanks for not following through with that look you gave me when I was describing <laughs> you being the everyman because I did have a phone in front of me and I had nine one one on speed dial. Thank you, Mick. You're welcome. Mick Foley joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back with another guest same time next week right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.